Welcome to episode 36 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in the Port du Soleil in Switzerland. I hope you're all well. Um, it's been a little while since uh, since the last podcast. It's been a, um, maybe a couple of months almost. Um, I've been away and busy and uh, the school holidays are getting in the way of me getting any constructive work done. Also, it's, uh, it's the month of August when absolutely no one comes back to anyone. So I find this personally a, a very, very frustrating time of year when... Um, when I'm trying to get things done and and, uh, and no one is around, so uh, anyway, I'm I'm a victim of that, and uh, here I am with episode 36, and it's it's one that I'm really really um, excited to bring to you. Um, it's with Peter Kuehl, um and I've been harassing Peter to do this for a very very long time. Um, I'm a huge fan of his. He was he's been very very influential in my skiing. Um, personal skiing and indeed almost as a sort of you know mentor and, and someone to help sort of guide me through this industry uh, as I've been making my way through it and uh, and I'll always be very very grateful for that and uh, the thing that I've always thought about Peter is is that he just knows so much and that it's very very important that I think that someone gets down you know on tape or, or on podcast or whatever, you know, just some of the stuff that, that he knows. Um, I'm a sort of unashamed fan and and, um, and a very, very much, I'm pleased that I had this opportunity to get this down. Um, we ended up talking so much that this is going to be a part one and a part two, and there's going to be no middle part to this episode. Um, there's no middle part because the, the interview is so good that I'm just going to leave it to run as it is, and, um, and this will be the only time that you hear from me on this particular episode. Um, so, yeah, I really, really hope that you enjoy this um, this episode with PK. Um, there's just some extra commentary from me, something that I wanted to mention because it's my podcast and I can. But uh, um, there's some very odd things that are happening in Europe right now, um, specifically in, in relation to, you know, health passports or vaccination passports or something like that you know whatever you want to call it um which are now you know becoming mandated in in italy in france i think also in austria um these are being rolled out you know by various um governmental bodies and and uh, and people and, and i don't doubt you know that the there is some good intention behind it however with vaccine uptake not being very high in many many of these countries i think france is anything beyond about 30 odd percent or something like that um what it effectively does and i'm only looking at this from a business point of view because i don't understand enough really about the um the medical side of it but we're going down a very very dangerous road here because as if we haven't had it badly enough for the last two years um you know with the cutting short of the the, the season before this one just gone and all of the restrictions and difficulties to get a, a, an outdoor sport um season going if you then go down the road where you're imposing something like vaccine passports to to access restaurants bars ski tickets uh holidays travel all of that sort of stuff i wonder if any of these bureaucrats that are running these schemes have thought about the impact on tourism uh that we all rely on so much here in the in in the alpine um alpine villages of europe and indeed probably in the us um 
if you impose something like this, you're effectively cutting off, let's say, around half of all of your potential visitors if the uh, if the percentages go across the board like that. Um, I think it's a tricky road to go down. I'm not sure it's the answer, and I really sincerely hope that it doesn't get rolled out into skiing, but you could quite easily see how it would be. Um, for my part, I'm trying to do do my bit, but for my part, what I've done is I've written to the president of the Canton Valley, um, and I have said that exact point to him. You know, like this is all very well if you're considering or getting any pressure from the federal council to to roll out this kind of thing. Um, that's all well and good, but be very, very careful with where you go about it because if you cut off the 50% of the potential businesses, all of the businesses that are in tourism at the moment who are still suffering from the last two years of this, this might even be the last and final straw for them. It's worth reflecting on whichever side of the argument to do with vaccine passports that you stand on. Um, if we're deliberately, you know, essentially boxing with one hand tied behind our back. Um, that's all I have to say on that particular subject. I hope you enjoy the Peter Kills interview. Um, like I said, it's very, very important to me that I, I recorded this. I'm so happy that I managed to do that. And, uh, and I really, really hope that you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast, Peter Kiel. Hi, I'm uh, happy to be here. I'm happy Quite to excited, have finally got you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, um, you don't have to look so nervous, <laughs> defensive. <laughs> We've known each other for a long time now, haven't we? And yeah. I'm really, really pleased to be able to to, to to kind of get you and to get you in person. It really makes me happy. How was, well, we talked about this a minute ago. Um, how was your winter? Without um, being too... Uh, surprisingly, um, I, I came out in, in November not not very sure at all about how things were going to work out. Um, and it became very apparent during November that it was unlikely that there'd be any real business in France until the earliest end of February. So I made a decision to, to move to Verbier and it seemed like Switzerland was going to continue to be open and operate and made myself available to Altitude Ski School mm. and to Basie uh, and ended up having a winter in, in Verbier, which w was actually quite productive. Um, and I was quite lucky, really, that I ended up with quite a lot of work. So, so my expectation was to be not doing very much work this winter, and actually I did do some work. Mm. Um, so, so that was good. How did you become... Um Verbier arised when you uh, when you spent a full season there. You have like a furry collar on the um, jacket and uh, no, no, not quite. Designer shades, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> I, man I managed to resist that, um, and, and thankfully uh, th there was still an element of lockdown, so so it was difficult for them to to draw me into the into the lifestyle. So so I survived. Uh, I survived Verbier. <laughs> I suppose there was some difficult for us. There were some difficult days on the mountain. Um, so we had we had a few school groups in January, and there was a cold snap in January, wasn't there? It was minus sixteen in Morgia, it must be Baltic in, in Verbia up at altitude. Um, and 
I expect that was before the derogation came where ski schools could eat inside. Did I imagine you had a couple couple of tough days on the mountain during that um, that cold snap? I think it was a very difficult um, way. It was very difficult to work this winter for for a number of reasons. One was, yes, you were out all day, mm. uh, and you couldn't go inside, um, and there were very limited toilets, um, and that made it difficult to operate. And then for most of the winter, there was a limitation of you couldn't have more than four people in front of you. Mm. Mm. Um, so you had one instructor plus four four students, and quite a lot of the work was was working with groups of ten. Most of the work was working with groups of ten, mm. where you had ten people for the day, and you had to work in pods or you had to do lapping, um, uh, and and it was a very different way of working, uh, and the challenges of keeping people, as you say, warm enough energy wise, mm. Mm. Um, was quite challenging. Um, and then on top of that, what started to happen was the, the, there was a little bit of jealousy from, from other ski schools and there was people reporting each other for apparently having more than four in a group and reporting to the commune mm. and people worried about newspapers getting photographs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, there was a lot of tension in the op- in, in where you normally have a very relaxed, fun atmosphere. Yeah. You were constantly monitoring and you'd have 10 people and you'd be working with four and another group of four would come up and they'd stand 10 feet away and you go, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> and you've got to be constantly checking masks. Yeah, um, yeah. So so it, was, it wasn't the typical relaxed atmosphere that you're used to, to operating in. Mm. Um, and that was quite challenging. So it was a tough year, a tough yeah, year yeah. Um, for everybody involved. Um, but we, well, we adapted and we made it work. Uh, and there was an awful lot of uh, um, sort of Zoom um, meetings and, and stuff like that to make it work and yeah. minimising contact. But it's, it's been an interesting season. And, mm-hmm. and thankfully, it worked and we managed to operate with no significant outbreak of COVID. So, mm-hmm. you know, Verbier spent a whole winter norm, pretty much normal operations with some adjustments um, and, and no major outbreaks. Um, so you know, I think it was a, a really successful um, experiment. Mm. I know they were worried about that because uh, at the end of the aborted season, not the one just gone, the one before, they were they did have you know it really went through the town, yeah. and they were they were really really paranoid about that for sure. So that's um, that's a good thing. But your normal normal base of operations is not. Uh, Verbier, your normal bay. You you operate Bass Ski School in Châtel, yeah, in France, yeah. Um, and of course, despite all the teasings that it may or may not be open, France didn't open no. this year, all except for ski clubs locally, right? And they could train on maybe one hill, yeah. But actual real ski teaching, you know, I've heard some strange stories coming out of Morzina people, you know. Some people, ESF guys, have done like you know seventy hours walking up and down the the escalator at Morzine on the Plenty or whatever, teaching snowboarding or they're they're teaching sledging or all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's it's the decimation of the ski school businesses over on this side and Italy and Austria, I guess, has been enormous. Yeah, absolutely <clears throat> enormous. Yeah, and uh, that's a shame. Yes, no, absolutely. It's been it's been a really tough year for 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 you know definitely 
99% of people uh, and, and I was very lucky and I, I made the decision to go to Verbier very early mm. um, and, and that worked out there was a risk to that was um, it a gamble in, in essence or I a, think a, it, um, what would you call it like an informed decision I guess it was an informed decision um, you know certainly there were two factors one was the, the lifts weren't opening in France and whilst they, they kept saying they might mm. The second part was the ski school is based on British people. Um, my ski school is based on British clients. Yeah. So, so there were two two barriers for the ski school to operate. One was will the ski ski areas open, and the second was will British people one be allowed to travel, will they choose to travel? Um, so, really, my decision was rather than trying to to make something work that was very difficult. Mm. I thought, well, it's much easier both for my clients um, and for the business just to say, right, we're not going to we're not going to commit to this season. Mm-hmm. It's much easier just to say, no, we're not going to operate, um, and 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 uh, and that's and in the end, that it was probably the best decision I could make. Yeah, for sure, you would have been sitting around doing nothing all season, right? Yeah, you know, apart from maybe what ski touring or something like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a shame. It's a shame. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping, fingers crossed. You know what we've got almost another year or so to to till next ski season that you know international travel is going to be happening. Yes, I, I think there's an awful lot of people very very dependent on that. Yeah, um, I think you can take one winter, maybe off with a bit of government support, but two is a bit yeah. is a bit much. Um, and yeah, like you say, we've been very lucky on the Swiss side. The Swiss seem to, to, to want to stay open and, and did their best. Although in November, it did look a bit touch and go. There was some, it was some dark days then, you know, where I was looking at, at what we had in the diary. And it wasn't pleasant reading, frankly. Yeah. But actually, as it turned out in Switzerland, because of a complete absence of anything else to do, we were extremely busy on weekends. You know, and we got a lot of clients that we wouldn't have all otherwise got, especially from the Geneva area, because they would normally have gone to skiing in Megève or yeah. Chamonix or wherever at the weekends. And, and they were, in effect, they didn't have really any other choice other than to come down our way, yeah. our side of the motorway. Yeah, so, I think I think Switzerland has handled the situation extremely well. Mm. I think they've managed to, um, to run as normally as possible uh, and minimise the risk. Mm. Um, and they 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 found a really good balance. Yeah. Uh, and they've been able to make decisions and and keep people knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. not messing. So I think they've done a really good job. I wonder what I suppose the issue with France because it's a, it's got a bigger population, right? Same would apply to Italy. Would be that they just didn't want massive numbers of people crossing the country. Yeah. I'm guessing that's what it was, what it was about, right? You know, yeah. The minute that you allow it, then everyone's going to get in the car and drive, you know, to the other side of the country and go skiing in mass, yeah, mass numbers. But the surprising thing was that during the school holiday period mm. in in Chatel, it was really really busy and people did travel even though the lifts weren't open yeah. because they wanted to get out of the cities. Yeah, and they still travelled. Yeah, and, and again, they managed to do that without any significant outbreaks in the resorts yeah um, so you know again I think the resorts knew they had to manage the situation so they had um, the, the local police out just checking yeah. people weren't gathering in big numbers and keeping masks on where appropriate 
Yeah. And again, I think they showed that they could manage it with large numbers in the resort uh, and still not have a, a sort of major, major issue with, with the virus. So yeah. again, I think what, what has happened is the ski resorts around both in France and in Switzerland have actually managed the situation incredibly well. Yeah. It's shown that actually um, it's good to get outside and, and be healthy um, yeah. uh, and, and it doesn't create a risk as long as you manage the situation. Hmm. I think this is one of the logic, one of those, this is only a personal opinion, I'm not asking you to comment on it if you don't want to, but it's one of the the weird ones that I find because I, I find these inconsistencies within the rules. So when I'm football coaching at the moment, you know, I'm standing in the middle of an AstroTurf pitch on my own, but I'm expected to wear a mask to do that. And you look around and you look at just the sheer amount of air around you and you think, this is this is one of those rules that doesn't seem to make sense. Like, I, I can understand why we're all doing it or why we all think we're doing it, but, but there are certain places where that, that stuff doesn't, doesn't make sense. And the whole kind of, I think the Swiss said, on many occasions actually, the government was saying, you know, you know, it's an open air thing. Like you're out in the open, and skiing's quite individualistic most of the time, apart from you know queuing up at lifts, right? And you're sort of limited in distance anyway because you've all got skis on your feet. Mm. So you you know the person you're behind, you're going to be at least a meter and a bit from, or maybe not the person next to you. But the Switzerland was full this winter of kind of bits of plastic on sticks that separate, as you well know, right, from Verbier. So you know whoever was in the market for selling those uh, one meter fifty long bits of plastic. That had writing on them has made a lot of money this winter out of Switzerland, that's for sure. Um, tell me a little bit before we get too stuck into to everything else. What I find the most fascinating thing about you, or one of them amongst others, is that um, you're sort of a product of the the boom years of Scottish skiing. Your father had a ski school in Aviemore. Yeah, Hans School. He came to Scotland in... 1957. And set up a ski school, right? Yeah. Um, and so that would be one of the sort of... Uh, what would you call it? That sort of Austrian school of ski teaching imported, as, as that was in so many other places, like in the US. Yeah. Another place, you know, if you, if you learn about the history of some of the US ski resorts, there was always some Austrian dude who'd kind of picked up his skis and come and arrived and got all this stuff going. So... Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that, like how that all happened and, and what your experience, life experience was growing up, you know, in that kind of environment. Yeah, I think the, it wasn't specifically a, 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 just an Austrian ski school moving over. Mm. What was happening in Scotland during the 50s was people were starting to realise they could ski in Scotland mm. um, and there was very little structure to it. And what was tending to happen was typically hotels, so accommodation, um, were, were looking for activities to keep their guests amused mm-hmm. um, and to keep them coming back. Yeah. And uh, a chap called Carl Fuchs came over to Scotland. Um, and, and at the time in Austria, it was post-war, um, that region where both Karl Fuchs and my father came from had been occupied by the Russians, and it was a very unpleasant environment to live oh, in. Oh, wow. Um, what was that? In, that would be... In where? Eastern? Shire, Shire Mark, the east, southeast east. Wow. part. 
Um, so, so they're not far from the Hungarian and Slovenian border. Yeah. Um, and at the time, the the Russians were were very good to to the locals. No doubt. And they they had quite difficult experiences. And 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 certainly that part of Austria, the, there wasn't a lot of future. Mm. Um, it was it was difficult to see a future. Um, and and the. Really, the Russians didn't leave till about 1955, so the occupation didn't finish till 1955. And then... Was that... No, sorry, I'm, a, I'm fascinated. I don't really know that much about the, the, the... I know a lot about the Second World War, but I don't know a lot about that, what happened in that area. So there was a, essentially a carve-up of Europe, wasn't there, yeah. after, after uh, you know, 1945, D-Day, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Like, that... that so... Presumably, that part of Austria got lumped in with like Hungary. Yeah. So there was a there was pretty much a race between the Russians and the Americans yeah. to occupy the, the various parts of Europe, mm-hmm. um, and and really that was already the Russians and the Americans were were, were recognizing they were they were going to be the the future enemies. Yeah. Um, so so the the Russians and the Americans were were rushing sort of east and west. To, to occupy as much as possible to see how much the, and, and what the Russians managed to achieve was take on take over Hungary and Czech and Czechoslovakia mm. and, and Poland and places yeah uh, and really Austria was right in the middle of that and, and thankfully Steiermark and Bergenland which are the eastern parts of Austria remained in the western half right um, so in some ways my both Carl and my father were lucky yeah so they moved over to Scotland and what was happening in Scotland was there were lots of lots of um, there were French instructors, there were Swiss instructors, Norwegians. Um, uh, there were lots of different nationalities, Italians, who had come over and started to teach people to ski. Um, and there started to become some British instructors operating up there who didn't have any qualifications. Mm. Um, so my father was was there, and he started with Carl in what was called the Austrian Ski School at Struan House, and then the hotel, one of the hotels in Carbridge, um, the Carbridge Hotel, the owner there, um, said, "Oh, we've got lots of clients. We we would like to have our own ski instructor for mm-hmm. our clients," and they managed to convince my father to work for them as their private instructor for the hotel, and there was a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, and that's where he started his ski school there, um, uh, which is called Carberg Ski School, and they were operating on Cairngorm. And at that time, Aviemore was just a railway junction. There wasn't very much there, and Carberg yeah. is a much bigger village than, than Aviemore. Um, Granton on Spey was the main town, and, and Aviemore was, was, was a tiny place, yeah. um, basically just a, a railway service um, village. Um, and, and that, that's where it started. And then they they recognised that they had these British people who could teach skiing, but there was no education system and there was no qualification and there was no, no certificate. Um, so in 1961, they started to create Basie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they realised they needed a British instructor training and, and grading system. Um, and... The inaugural meeting was December, I think November, December 1961, and then it was formally formed in 1962, and the first course was during the winter of 1961-62. Wow. 
um, and my father was the examiner with Frith Finlayson on that. Um, and that's really where it started. And I was born in 1962 um, and was skiing by 1964. <laughs> <laughs> Two years old, it's um, the rule. And uh, yeah, and, and grew up very much in, in the the skiing environment. You know, it was like, you will ski. Yeah. I didn't really, I wasn't old enough to argue. Yeah, um, this is and, what we do kind of thing. And found yeah. myself at sort of, nine, ten, eleven years old ski racing and, and all I wanted to do was go skiing. Yeah. Um uh, and really started there. Yeah. Um so so that's that was that's very much the the history of it. Um and yeah. And you carried that on through into your teenage years. Yeah, so presumably you got roped into teaching a bit on the hill with the ski yeah, school. Yeah, I, I was probably teaching lessons when I was 15, 16, but I was also ski racing um, and I got involved with the British ski team pretty much from from about 16, 17. So that would have been um, what, in the early mid-70s? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so toward, yeah, second half of the, the 70s. Okay. Um, and got that was called the British Citizen Team at the time, um, and and I, I just got involved with racing for the next sort of six seven years, um, into international racing, and then got from that. Um, I did go to university and study civil engineering. Um, but never used that. Did you? Um, I didn't know that. So and that that's been really useful. Um, so the engineering background understanding mechanics, um, understanding how forces work, um, has been very useful from for in my coaching and teaching. Um, and it, it's helped a lot yeah. in, in being, uh, being able to, to look at somebody and go, right, this is what they need to get better. Rather than following a prescriptive process of yes. right, you you have to do this to be and 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 this is this is one of the big things for me is, um and after I did my degree and and, and finished the, um, the the ski racing or actually during sodium ski I did a diploma in, in sports coaching as well, um should have been about nineteen eighty four five I oh, think everything neon. Um, and that's when they started to where I was introduced to the idea of movement patterns and skill acquisition uh, as opposed to technique Um, and it it opened my eyes to the fact that the moment you start to have this concept of technique um, you limit um, the the skill you you, you say okay this is how you do it Um, Mm. and it's this idea of, of Einstein's definition of insanity um, which is if you keep doing the same thing time and time again and expect to get a different result, you're insane. Mm. To get better, you have to do something different. Um, so, so what I learned very early on was what can you do differently to get better? Um, and the problem with technique is, no, this is the right solution. Just do that and yeah. don't do anything different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the moment you use the word technique, you limit... Um, somebody's skill that you limit the, the their inputs you limit their ability to get better mm. um, 
And, and I find throughout my career working with training instructors, teaching people to ski, coaching people, you're constantly challenged by, but you have to do this. You have to keep your body facing down the hill. Um, you have to do this with your pole or, or whatever it is. Um, rather than going, well, actually, let's just go and try stuff and figure out if we do that, what happens? Um, yeah. uh, and, and being much more open-minded about the solutions to good performance. Uh, and what was very clear from this um, uh, diploma in sports coaching, they talked about open, open skills as opposed to closed skills. They talked about movement patterns and being able to vary those movement patterns to get different outcomes rather than keep doing the same thing time and time again. And one of the big things that came through that was they talked about Bjorn Borg, who was a tennis player. Mm. And they said that the outcome of Bjorn Borg being such a good tennis player in Sweden was everybody tried to copy him. Everyone tried to ski like Bjorn Borg. Uh, or to play, to tennis, play tennis sorry, yeah, like yeah. Bjorn yeah. Borg. And they didn't get any good players anymore yeah. because they weren't trying to be creative with their performance. Yeah. They were just trying to copy and they were missing out an awful lot of the skills that Bjorn Borg probably had done, all the work he'd done to become really skillful. Well, and not only were, that, but those skills would have only suited his, his, yeah, uh, his somatotype, right? yeah. the way he's built. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, and over the years, I've tried to to build this, this idea um, and one of the great opportunities was so a few years later I got involved with Basie and I became a trainer and I was invited to develop um, some new concepts in Basie and run the first ever technical module mm-hmm. when we changed the system. And I, I got to work with Hugh Money on the first ever course. Mm. Um, and we, we pretty much designed that course on the hoof, as it were, where we just went, Hugh and I would spend four hours every night planning what we were going to do the next day. Yeah. And Hugh came in with this idea of the fundamental elements. Um, and we looked at the, the these, what, what it, and this is again coming back to movement patterns, coming back to what is skill, um, what makes a good skier. And we, we had this list of things which, which included movements, um, included balancing and, and, and having a, an athletic posture and how do we how do we control our edges and how do we actually be, to become skillful how do we change our edge angles at any given point in time and then learn what the outcome of that is and that that fitted so well with my understanding of where performance come it comes from and how it's developed um, wasn't this is the right way to ski. It was right to become a good skier. You need to be really good at changing your edge angles, mm. getting them flatter, getting them more tilted, really good at managing the movements that create rotation or manage rota- or reduce rotation. Um, and, and for me, that, that, that was perfect. It was a perfect structure um, for, for my under- what I'd learned from my coaching education, what I'd learned from, from, from doing engineering. Mm. Um, it, it opened up the opportunity to be able to develop people in their yeah. skiing really well um, without the blockages of 
you've got to do this the right way. Mm. Um, this is how you ski, um, which is this concept of technique. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is today, I still hear so many people using that word technique. And, mm. and I just go, oh my God, <laughs> throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and, 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 understand, and, and that's one of the big things that whenever I'm working with people now, I talk about, and this is from complete beginners to, you know, people who are working towards their Bayesian level four or, you know, people who, who are trying to get into national teams of ski racers. Um, and coaches are just as bad. Coaches are they, they 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 have this idea that it's just the right way to do you know this is the right way to be as fast as you can mm. instead of building your athlete's ability to be versatile um, and and it drives me mad but that that's one of the big things for me is this idea of let's not talk about technique but let's mm. talk about being able to move learning what happens if you do something. And, and being prepared to to do something different, yeah, um, because that's how you get better, yeah, um, uh, and that's uh, this um, this civil engineering thing is is really interesting. It does explain a lot because my my as you well know the, the, the familiar name that I give to you is the guru, and when we've skied together before, I've trained with you before and stuff like that. You you've really opened my eyes to a lot of this stuff, right? And uh, I think the most interesting thing about when we skied together is that you always got an answer to the why. Like, why are we doing this? Why does this work? There was no kind of, this is how you do it. It's kind of, it's the other side of it, you know, which, which is what I need in order to be able to, 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 to ski well. I need to understand it and come to an understanding of it. Um, you know, I'm going down a, a, a real rabbit hole in my own personal skiing in, in, to, in terms of a couple of little things that maybe we'll touch on later. But for me, it's a question of exploration and understanding rather than like, here's a picture in a book and that's what it should look like. And yep. that's what, we, you know, that's, that's why I've been so desperate to get this interview with you down for like 30-odd episodes, you know, waiting and waiting because you've had such a big influence on how I ski and why, you know, why I ski essentially. And, um, and, and, and that's, that has made a real connection to me is you can, you can feel the engineering background come out of you when you teach. It's like, well, when we, when we ski, right, you do this thing because it works in this way. It'll work for you, but it doesn't necessarily work for me because that's the way that you're designed, and that you know you you you're working with certain certain different things, right? You you wouldn't build an identical bridge over there on that set of terrain that you would on that set of terrain over there, which is completely different. Wouldn't work, right? Yeah. And it's the same with skiing, and it's the same with individual skiing. Yeah, and I think that's that's so important. And I think what when you say you're going down a rabbit hole. What what we do, uh, you know, what I've always done, and I think really good teachers are always are always trying to learn for themselves. Mm. What, what can I learn about something? And I I did the New Zealand full cert qualification. Um, I did I worked for the Austrian Bundesportheim for a season and got involved in the Austrian system. Mm. Um, and I've had the great so many opportunities to work with other really talented instructors and coaches around the world. And every time I work with somebody. I see it as an opportunity to learn uh, and, mm. and you sort of go, well, 
they're doing that. Why are they doing it? Um, and I go and try it. Um, and, and rather than making a judgment about what, whether it's working or not, I'll go and try it. Mm. And then I'll understand why they're doing it. Um, and, and that's the only way that, that you can broaden and, and develop yourself. Uh, and I think, again, when I worked full time for Bayesie, I used to bring people in from outside the organization. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really important. Um, because it wasn't saying that the people inside the organization weren't knowledgeable or skillful. Mm. But every time you bring something new in, what I find is it triggers triggers some thoughts and it start and what you tend to do is develop from that and you develop your own ideas mm. and very often those new ideas set you off in a new direction and you don't just embrace that new idea but you sort of work with it and you actually develop it for yourself yeah and it, you build it into your own uh, I guess what's called a paradigm or, or or your own sort of structure of how you think about things well let's, um, let's let's not tease the listener anymore so here's the rabbit hole I was going down I'm going to run it past you feel free to shoot me down with it <laughs> we employed this year um, and so pleased coming back next year a guy called Grant Dillon um, another talented Scott this sort of endless production line of ridiculously good uh, uh, Scottish skiers hi Grant if you're listening and I was having this conversation with in the same way that you just talked about, right? So you talk to other instructors about how they ski, because this guy is, he's good. He's short, relatively short, so he's kind of, you know, hip on the floor, hand on the floor kind of guy, no probs. Um, but I said to him, like, how do you, how do you turn, right? How do you, how do you get the turn going? What's your, what's your thing? Um, his, he is all about, all about, it's fairly textbook, and I'm sure we talked about this early, early pressure or pressing down, his initial mover, the getting a turn going in any situation is early pressure on the outside ski. I've been thinking, or trying to feel actually, like, and I've been thinking about this for a season or two now, that pressure on the outside ski is a consequence of getting the turn going. As in, when you start the, the sort of the rotational movement with your foot or your feet, what happens is, is the weight, your, your physical weight or the, what do you call it, like momentum or whatever that is, sh- automatically shifts to the outside as a consequence of you going to that place. And then it's a question so that pressure isn't actually like a, a, a thing you're doing it's a balancing movement against <clears throat> that pressure so you're using your body to manage the, the balancing now we might be talking about two things of the same thing so there might be two different ways to do it but the way that I want to ski personally at the moment is to skillfully steer my skis and have that pressure arrive as a consequence of what I'm doing with that skillful rotational movement rather than that's the only thing I'm doing is pushing down. Yeah. What do you think? Um, Shoot me down. No, 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 no. I think, I think you're spot on. Um, and I, I think there, um, what, what Grant is doing is, is, you know, what a lot of ski racers are, 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 are taught to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, and what you tend to get is, is is quite a straight leg, and you get you get a lot of tilt. Um, and, and that kind of approach is very dependent on, on quite a lot of momentum. Mm. Um, and you're right, there's 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 more to it than that. Um, and I think what what Grant probably has without fully understanding it, and that that might be unfair, um, <laughs> yeah. is there's more there's more to it than than just pushing. And I think he's able to balance. And when we talk about skill acquisition, and this is another key key concept, which is again coming back to that movement patterns and not technique, is that when we learn. Um, there's there's phases that we go through and what a lot of ski instructors do is block the the process of becoming skillful um, and Fitz and Posner called it um, cognitive and then associative and then then uh, autonomous so what Grant is probably at now is a fairly autonomous skillful behavior that makes his skis work mm. and he responds to what's happening under his feet i suspect he's very good at feeling what's going on getting the amount of tilt and the amount of pressure right so that he's able to make the ski work effectively all the way through the turn and that's come from 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 years of going through what i would call what what uh, fitz and posner called the associative process Endless um, gates, endless repetitions of yeah, but, uh, repetitive kind of movement. But I suspect there's probably, he could probably be broader in, in what he's doing and he could probably become even more skillful. But I don't know, I haven't met him and I haven't seen him skiing. You, um, yeah, I, I should explain to the listener, but this is a guy who's just passed his basic level four. He will do his zero yeah. test next year. He is an extraordinary skier. Yeah. But... Like, so I'm only mentioning this. I'm not saying that my way is the right way. I'm no, saying that the, uh, this, so, is, this is so another gonna, way. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that. So, mm. so, so really what, what you're doing when you enter a turn is, is you want to feel like that the ski is working for you. So you've got a solid balance platform. You're trying to bend the ski a little bit. You're trying to engage the ski in a way that it works. And the reality of a good turn is if you're changing direction, um, something is pushing you in a new direction. This is coming back to the, the, the mechanics and the engineering side, the, yeah. the physics of it. Something is pushing you in the new direction. It, turning doesn't just happen. And an awful lot of skiers accidentally get the outcome of the ski actually building a bit of pressure under their outside ski. But if you watch 99% of skiers, they're not very good at it. And that pressure that they encounter with the change of direction very happens uh, very often happens in very sudden points in the turn and quite often they don't have any pressure at all for periods of the turn mm-hmm. and it's less effective it's less skillful it's less efficient yeah um, and the the, 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 the the physics term is is centripetal force not centrifugal doesn't exist mm-hmm. no such thing as centrifugal force um, but what you if you're going around any kind of corner, there, there is a load happening on your body because you're changing direction. Um, and what you should feel is pressure under your, your, your feet. Um, and that's, that's uh, when we come back to skill acquisition, that's an indication of success. So that associative process is, it's called knowledge of success. And we associate certain feelings, sensations, feedback that happens during the activity that tells us we're getting it right 
And that's one of the things that we should notice is that pressure is building up under our outside foot. That is an indication of success. Um, and that's something that we learn is a good thing. And I suspect what Grant does is he's very aware of that and very responsive to that. And he adjusts his movements, probably subconsciously, autonomously, mm -hmm. um, to get the outcome he needs. There will be some cognitive stuff going on. But really, really good skiers have learnt the, the, the sensations, the knowledge of success. What good teachers do is help the learners to know the knowledge of success um, and drawing out the, the what would be called intrinsic feedback um, during the, the, the activity that tells them when they're getting it right. So and also... So if so, you can do that in a number of ways, right? So you could say, for example, you know, if they come down and they're giving you a good performance, you said whatever that felt like, that's it. Yeah. Go around and do it, see if you can get it again or something. And the, the rabbit hole you were talking about was, yeah, I, I want to build that pressure early in the turn, but I might have a different approach to that from Grant. Mm. And that's cool. And actually there are different approaches to that. And you hear people talking about cross-unders and crossovers, uh, And again, that's, that's going back to a technique. This is the right way to do it. Mm. Depending on your momentum, depending on the shape of the turn, depending on the snow conditions, you may have, your hips may come a bit higher off mm. the snow um, than, a, than, than a different situation. Mm. So the moment you say you've got to do a cross-under, you're limiting your skill, you're limiting yeah. your inputs. Yeah. The moment you say you've got to do a crossover and go up in the air, you're limiting stuff. You adjust the, the, the entry, the transition, to deal with your situation for that turn and that environment. Mm. If it's icy, if it's soft snow, if you're going faster. And actually, quite often you'll find during one set of 30 turns, that changes... Mm. As you work your way down, because your momentum changes, the terrain changes, yeah. um, your, there's all sorts of things that are always changing. And really good skiers aren't going, I'm going to do exactly the same movement on every turn. Mm. They're adapting and adjusting. And that's, again, when we talk about the associative process. There are two things that, that, that Fitz and Posner are really talking about. One was that knowledge success. How do I know when it's right? How do I know when it's wrong? Without somebody else telling me. Mm. And one of the problems with a lot of coaches and ski instructors is they don't stop telling and they, they don't facilitate that process of them knowing for themselves. Mm. And the moment you keep telling, you, you, limit, you limit that process. The learner becomes quite yeah. dependent then, doesn't it, on the coach, yeah. essentially. And, and the other part of it is let's vary the inputs let's choose to do something different and when you do something different you learn the outcome of that so if i change it this is what happens mm. and then if i change it a bit more this is what happens and then you learn okay i can adapt and adjust and you need to teach people to adapt and adjust their movements so that they can choose to adjust for their situation and I would suggest that almost every turn in skiing is slightly different. Mm. The terrain changes, the speed changes, the snow changes. It's constantly changing. And really good skiers are the ones who aren't limited in their inputs 
they're able to adapt and adjust and change for mm. the situation. Um, and, and that's really, and you can start teaching that with complete beginners. Mm. In the first two hours, you can start talking about intrinsic feedback. You can start talking about that knowledge of success. Mm. You can start to help them to relax and be free in their movements and be more outcome orientated. Build the inputs, teach them the inputs, and then teach them when you're getting it right, these are the kind of things you feel. Mm. You're balancing, um, bending the ankles and the hip joints. People are really bad at that when they start skiing. Yeah, yeah. Teaching them to do it, and then what it feels like when it's right, and then using it to get the outcomes they want. That that's that's what real teaching is. Yeah. Um, not not just bend the knees or <laughs> keep your hands there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So <clears throat> so you grew. We talked a little bit about that. We when. When you were growing up within that ski school environment or around it, the skis were longer, they were straighter, um, for sure. You would have seen towards the end of the 80s and 90s, you would have seen a transition to slightly more curved curved edge skis. Um, I know that there was, with the old skis in the old days, there was an element of sort of up and waiting because you had to because the ski didn't rotate because it was straight. So the 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 inputs are slightly different. Stylistically, it would have looked quite different because the equipment is longer and more unwieldy. But when you look these days, for example, at the top level skiers in giant slalom, compared to some of the pictures from the 70s, it's actually not massive differences in the body shapes that they that, that, that are coming out of it i know that giant slalom skis these days uh what 30 meters yeah and they're 188 some 190 odd but there are certain things within that kind of old style of skiing and uh, all the way through to modern day skiing that haven't really changed a great deal yeah the, the ski skill works in the same way right yeah, uh, and I think again, this is where if you if you look back at skill acquisition rather than technique, what you find is if people have the the, the really good skiers, the people who are really good at skiing, and, mm. and you talk about ski racers, um, and they're not necessarily the best skiers in the world. Yeah, they they're very good at one particular aspect of skiing, but they're pretty skillful and they've adapted their movements, if they've actually gone through a full range of, of making sure they've got all their inputs, so they can use all of the movements, they can balance really well, they've worked on balancing, they've worked on range of movement, they've got lateral separation, they've got rotational separation, and it's become very natural. What you start to see is a commonality in how they look, because they've figured out the right solutions. Mm. the problem is that if you go okay that's obviously the right way to ski you miss out all the work they did to get that that really skillful skiing and this is where so often people try to shortcut and the work people who are very skillful aren't born with with that skill 
Mm. They've put the work in, and you know, people talk about ten thousand hours of of training, mm. um, of activity to become an Olympic athlete, and there's, there's, you hear that that figure bandied around. One of the realities about those ten thousand hours is the quality of each of those hours mm. and the effectiveness of the processing of the process of of that activity. Um, so some people can do ten thousand hours and not be nearly as good as somebody else. Mm-hmm. But what you will see, and this is where you know, going back to the sixties um, or the fifties or or the eighties or the nineties, yes, equipment changed. Um, the sport has changed. Equipment's changed. Our understanding of 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 movement and skill has changed, and and, and all of that stuff. But the really good guys in the fifties and the sixties. They had all the movements available. They had lateral separation available. They had rotational separation available, and they quite often had their feet feet much closer together, because that's that was a technique thing that they were told to do. Oh, is it? Because I was going to talk to you about that because I heard that's how I heard only heard this. But that's how you used to ski in oh. this kind of uh, what was it? What was that guy's name? Um, Stein, ski like Stein, Stein Erickson. Yeah. That was a thing, right, back in the day, but it was yeah. a stylistic thing. I Very think. much so. But you and changed fundamentally your technique well, to ski how you ski now, which I often take the piss out of you for. Well, ski racing, but, ski racing, I was told to keep my feet apart. Right. Um, and to pass Basie level, at the time it was called National Ski Teacher, um, when I passed, the, we called it, we had to do end form parallels. We had to have your feet jammed together. And <sighs> um, so, so there couldn't be a gap between your feet when I passed the Daisy qualification. I can't um, like that. <laughs> at the same time, at yeah. the same time, I was ski racing, keeping my feet apart. Oh really? Um, uh, so, so I had to do both. Huh? Um, so, so you know, we but but again, um, you could adapt mm. because because I'd done a lot of. And I'd spent a lot of time, and one of one of the great advantages of growing up in, in near Aviemore. I used to go up at the weekends um, and just go skiing for myself. Mm. And very often I'd just be on my own and sometimes be with a couple of mates. And we had great bumps runs on the White Lady and I just used to blat up and down. And I got into so much trouble, with my, particularly with my mother, <laughs> um, because I would, go, I would get a lift up there in the ski school van and then I was, I was so into the skiing I didn't stop till five o'clock and the ski school van had gone and all the cars had gone and I'd be stuck in the car park and I was the last person off the mountain um, uh, and and uh, some of the, the workers on the lifts would give me a lift down into Aviemore uh, and, and I'd have to have a few coins and find a, f- a phone box and phone my mother to come and get them uh, and she was wondering, sort of panicking about where I, where I was um, uh, and so, so I'd just gone skiing uh, and not not I uh, managed to to avoid too much direction in, in how to ski and mm. just had lots of opportunities to go and do crazy stuff. And one of the things I love about my kids now are, are in the French um, coaching system. Mm. And one of the things they do really well is bef- between the ages of sort of six and ten years old, they just go skiing. Mm. They go powder skiing. They go bump skiing. Yeah. And they don't get too too defined in how to ski. Mm. They just go, yeah, let's go skiing. Let's go fast. Yeah. And they don't do slalom skiing until they're 10 years old. They do super G and giant slalom mm-hmm. if they go into gates. And just get the kids skiing fast and having fun. Mm. Um, and then they bring in 
then they start to bring in a bit more direction in, in, in the skills. But the kids learn to be free, and, and, and I love the, the, the term freedom of movement. Mm. Uh, and very often people go skiing and, and they're confined um, by the education yeah. they've had yeah, from yeah, ski yeah. instructors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think one of my goals when I'm working with other trainers is to try and talk about that kind of stuff mm. um, and and how, you know, let's not be too, we, we have, and one of the challenges for any instructor education system is, is that you have to have consistency in assessment. And quite often the, the that, that situation of, of consistency in assessment blocks the training mm. and it's like you, to pass you have to do this uh, and that was you know, my Bayesian mm. passing my Bayesian I have to have my feet together yeah but I can't ski as well doing that doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> get your feet together <laughs> yeah um, uh, and and you know okay and that was a test and I could do it and mm. you know I did pass uh, and and there was there was no problems um but it was, and so often, um, and that's one of the biggest challenges for any ski instructor exam ed- education system mm. is being able to justify decisions of passing and failing very often create blockages in, in the, the real training process um, and, and, and quite often the education process. So it, it sort of narrows things down a bit. Yeah. Uh, and I think every every organization struggles with with that that balance. Um, yeah, right. You, you've got to have some criteria, haven't you? Yeah. And, 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 and I suppose they've got to draw the line somewhere in order to give out the badge. So you know you can't have it as this sort of yeah. open fluid thing. And and that's what I loved about the fundamental elements because it created some criteria that that were a little more open mm. than you've got to have your hands in this place or you've got to be bending your ankles at this point and straightening at this point. Mm. Um, and it, it created freedom, more freedom. For me, it created freedom to develop really good skiing. Mm. Talking of freedom, especially in kids skiing, right? You're talking about kids going, getting used to going fast or just free skiing. They do a lot of that in Mojang as well, I've noticed. with the, I see the ski club there and they often, they're just blatting around the mountain. It's lovely to see those little guys doing that. Um, how often do you come across kids that are blocked by the equipment? Their freedom of movement is blocked by the equipment. If I see another boot that has got like a straight up right angle where the kid who whose, whose centre of gravity is already back because of their, their age and that's just how they are, with a boot that is, uh, yeah, you know, you know the one, you, everyone's seen the ones that I mean. And often if I've got parents of, well, any skiers, but the ones that have, you know, you could see who've got the love for it, I often send their parents and I say, you need to take this kid back to the shop, you know, like, and go and get a proper set of boots and yeah. get rid of those because your kid ain't going to be able to move otherwise. And you're going to be stuck in this huge, you know, snowplow for the rest of the next four or five years unless you get this problem solved. Yeah. It's, um, I had... Some of the equipment that goes out of the higher shops drives me bananas. I totally agree. Uh, and it's at, it's at every level. Uh, and it's the same, you know, even working with, you know, under 16 kids um, ski racing. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been racing for a long time. Boots too stiff. 
yeah. boot, boots too tight. Um, I know of you know people who've been in the British ski team who've had to have operations on their feet afterwards because they've done so much damage to their feet. Really? Because their coach told them to buy boots two sizes too small mm. to give them more control. Um, and skiing in boots that are two sizes too small, no way do you have more control. Um, if you're not, if your feet aren't comfortable and free to move, mm. you're you're not going to be as skillful. Mm. Um, and what you're really doing is blocking out your. And this is what happens. A lot of people they block out their ankles and feet movement. Mm. They they create get a pair of boots that are so stiff and so tight, they can no longer use their feet and their ankles. Mm. So then everything is happening in the hip joint. Mm. Um, and one of the problems there is once you start working just around the hip joint, you tend to lose the, the ability to use your ankles and knees and hips mm. properly and you don't have any suspension. And the German for, um, for your ankle is your Sprunggelenk, your spring joint. And that's really your suspension. So what you're doing is then, if you when you are skiing a higher performance, you're getting bumps or ruts or things like that. You've 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 immobilized your suspension. So now all those forces that, that are hitting your body are going into your hip and your lower back. Mm. Mm. And you start to hear of ski instructors who are supposed to be athletes having hip replacements in their forties and fifties mm-hmm. because they haven't learned to use their ankles, knees, and hips. Mm. And very often that is equipment. Yeah. It's either either the boot's too stiff or, or they've got these massive ramp... Women with massive ramp angles, yeah. the... the, the um, uh, what's it called? The, anyway. Um, the del- delta, delta. The yeah, delta, delta angle, yeah, yeah. where their heels are really high and, and they're blocked in their ankles. Yeah. They, they can't use their suspension, which means that they're likely to, to have long-term damage if they do a lot of skiing and hit a lot of forces. Mm. And for me, it's not just about the... the the technical ability, but it's also the risk to the body. Mm. If you don't, and, and so often people are in boots that are too stiff. Yeah, they can't use their ankles, um, or they're the wrong size, either mm. too big or too small, um, uh, and that that's a huge issue. Yeah, um, and I think the boots is the biggest one. Um, the skis are next. Yeah, but the, the the boots are, are, are definitely the biggest problem. What do you ski? What's your boot? Uh, Salomon. Uh, I use the Salomon Labs. Yeah. One thirty flex. No, I use one tens. No. Yeah. Because I can. I get... you lost a load of weight recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's it it's again. Um, it gives me more range of movement. Really. Um, I I just have more more to work with, and I can get more out of my skis. Uh, and this is this is you know. Do you not I, go through the front of them all the time? That, that's about managing your movements and I guess I, I guess I've got muscle to deal with that yeah uh, but um, but what it, it just gives me that more range of, and, and the more range of movement you have the more performance you get and again I grew up in, in a through the ski racing environment of yeah you'll be faster with stiffer skis mm. um, you'll be faster with stiffer boots uh, and one of the things I learned, and I can remember this very vividly, I used to, when I was in the British team, we were based in Les Arc, and um, Ronald Duncan was my, my fitness training partner. Right. Um, his, his nickname was Boris. Um, and we we did, and in Les Arc, we were in Les Arc 1850, um, and it was in the autumn. And we 
the 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 great thing was there were lots of stairs. There were there were these um, sort of tower blocks, and and there were like fifteen flights of of twelve stairs, um, and we would we would go and hop up these stairs. We do all fifteen flights all at once, and we used to do we used to hit every step the first first time. Yeah. So we do right leg hop all the way up, then left leg hop all the way up. Then we do hit every second step and we go all the way up. And then we choose to hit every third step and then every second step and every step. And we yeah. used to do this. Um, and uh, what, one of the things I, I started to do was I would try and each step, I would try and land without making any noise and I would land softly. And I found that that helped my skiing because I wasn't just forcing the ski, I was much more in touch and much more responsive to the ski. Mm. And I learned to be much softer. And I learned that I needed my ankle to be able to get more performance. And I would actually carry more speed through a turn if I had more range of movement because I could absorb some of the forces through the exit and build through the start. Mm. And I've learned that, and, and what I also learned through that racing career where I started to get to choose my skis, the flex of my skis a bit more, um, I found that actually softer skis were faster. Um, and you had this sort of, yeah, you you have, and it was a misunderstanding of, of physics um, that to go faster you had to have a stiffer ski and a stiffer boot. Um, and there wasn't the understanding of managing managing those, that, that, that pressure that was coming through so that you didn't overload and didn't get kicked and did, and, and you're more able to 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 respond to what was going on under your feet and having a softer softer ski and a softer boot and there was obvi- there was clearly the right there was a certain amount of you could go too soft yeah uh, and and you could and you could go too stiff um so I do have a pair of 130 flex boots that I don't use very often yeah. but usually I use them when it's so when I'm doing high performance skiing and it's very warm yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and the situation demands it. Um, but most of the time I ski on 110s and still, you know, still ski at really high levels. <laughs> and it's not about having the stiffest ski and it's not about having the stiffest boot. No. It's about, again, having that range of movement available, um, choosing equipment that allows you to move. Um, yeah. Not, not about having equipment that stops you from moving, um, which is what, what so many people have. I wonder though if there's a subset of like instructors or skiers that like that feeling of everything being like stiff and strong because their nature is to try and <clears throat> like bully the snow. Essentially, yeah. it's like I'm going to impose my will onto the snow. I've yeah. talked about this. Like, yeah, another rabbit hole I'm going down, but I'm kind of very much in touch with. Uh, I like to try and feel like I'm in touch with the snow, and that for me manifests itself in I like, I actually really like used race GS skis that are a little bit dead mm-hmm. because you can kind of feel. Oh, God, bloody hippie. Like, I'm, you, if you could see what I'm doing on this podcast listener, I'm kind of wiggling my fingers as if I'm going into a turn but what that says to me is that I'm trying to feel my way in I'm feeling my way in to the turn looking for grip looking for that balance point where I can yeah. then balance against the ski my nature isn't to just throw the skis over and, and 
impose my will on the snow. Yeah. I've gone in a very different direction now, no, and I'm looking to flow with the mountain. And I think, again, th- this is coming back to that um, skill acquisition theory of, you know, the associative processes, feeling and responding mm. is, is what you, you, you learn your inputs. Um, and I think it's very, very similar to musicians. I've talked to some musicians who are very talented musicians who talk about the first thing you have to do is learn to learn to use your 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 instrument, mm-hmm. and and that's quite technical, scientific. You've got to go through the process of learning to use it. Mm. Then, once you've got all the bits, you've got all the notes, you've got all the the movements with your hands or whatever it is to play the instrument. Yeah, you then learn to respond and let go of the structure, uh, and sort of respond and flow. You have to learn the and rules to break. You the have rules. to. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And you've got to have all the inputs. And the first stage is you've got to learn all the inputs, and that's lateral separation, rotational separation, bending and stretching. There's all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you learn to use them in a flowing, responsive way. Um, and I can remember when I was doing my diploma in sports coaching, we had coaches from different sports. And uh, we had a judo player and a football player and, and I was a skier. And then we had three swimming coaches and we talked about this this open skill. And the, the, the judo coach and myself particularly said, oh yeah, swimmers, that's a closed skill. You just you just swim up and down a pool and it's exactly the same movement all the time. Yeah. And they went, no, 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 no. Because you have to get a feel for the water. Every Every stroke you're feeling for the water, you're looking for the resistance from the water. Oh yeah, um, and yeah. they talked about if you were in the lead, the water was less disrupted, so you you could get a better feel and a better stroke. So if you were in front and the yeah. water wasn't disrupted, you had an advantage. So, so you the, got even quicker in a so, so the dive and the start was really important, so that you could you could get ahead of the others, and it was easier to to swim. Hmm. And, and again, there was this sort of aha. So it's not just about technique it's about this adapting and adjusting the movement pattern um which which is and again as i said you can start that process right in the first hour of a a beginner's um skiing yeah um and and, uh and you're right Uh, and this is what this slightly softer equipment allows and facilitates and i think when you talk about these guys who and and there's a lot of people out there who truly believe that really stiff boots are really important really Mm. stiff skis are really important you tend to find they are aggressive and they again what you tend to find is there's less suspension going on there's a lot more forces going on again you quite often see them working more in the hip area than, mm. than the ankle and knee um and, and again I, for me i i think they're they're potentially going to damage their bodies mm. um i guess uh, it's like having a really stiffly set up race car right rally car you know yeah. you're crashing through stuff to a certain extent yeah but that sort of thing requires more maintenance than a regular softer yeah. sprung car and, and i guess it's a form of fashion um and, and and like everything in the world we we have fashions and everybody goes oh yeah that's cool mm. um and 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 there are these concepts that this is this is how to do things mm. and, and quite often it's not driven by scientific knowledge I think one of the big challenges at the moment is these really wide skis. Everybody mm. thinks that the really wide skis underfoot are really cool. And they're designed for a very specific environment, <laughs> which is <laughs> off-east in deep snow. Yeah. Um, 
and you get onto ice and what the, the torque the torsion that's created um laterally on the joints of the ankle the knee and the hip joints yeah. is huge mm. when you're on ice on those skis and again i, I think in the long term there's, there's, there's risk of long-term you know damage to knee joints and hip joints and, and yeah. lower back from people who ski a lot on that kind yeah, of ski yeah, yeah. well but, you would have seen plenty of that but you would have seen plenty of that in verbia this winters people yeah, skiing uh, around on on fat skis on piste and you're like why are you doing this and they're on ice yeah. and, and and that that equipment isn't designed for that situation right. and you're putting extra loads that aren't that are really unnatural loads on the body Mm. Um, and again equipment <laughs> so there are so many bad choices in equipment and it does worry me that you know the people who are selling this equipment yeah. aren't, aren't being aren't, aren't telling mm. people who are buying it this is this is what it's designed for yeah. and it's not really designed for this don't yeah. Mm. I'm with you. Well, I have two two points to make about that. So, so one, I'm also trying to do more and more. Um, for me personally, I it, it it carries on with this idea of slightly freedom of expression, but also getting away from performance as skiing as performance. You know, uh, physical strength performance. So I'm getting more and more into. You know, I'd like now to pick up my telemark skis than I would to pick up um, Alpine skis and I've just changed so on my previous telemark setup was an 89 underfoot uh, Dina Star something or other some crappy ski I don't like it at all but that held me has held me back for ages and I, I just swapped my telemark setup for an old soft GS ski 188 centimeters 68 underfoot it's changed my world completely because yeah. it's a nice you know because Telemark skiing is is you're not doing much carving. It's it's a lot of uh, there's more there's more skidding involved in it, and it's just an easier ski to go edge to edge from. Yeah. You know, it, it speeds up that that transitional um, lead change movement, and it's just a nicer place to be. Mm. You know, and the majority of skis are like you know those fat skis that you see people skiing around on Verbier and Zermatt and Chamonix and whatnot. Like they they're useful anything beyond. 80 mil you know like you don't, you don't need that stuff in the no. off piece no you know you just go straighter if you if you want to float go more direct like, yeah. it's bizarre to me but um, yeah and, and then you see these people going around on these huge skis and you're, like, you're, you're not living in Alaska you're skiing around bloody Villa or you know Port de Soleil yeah. that, that, that doesn't exist here you don't need that kind of stuff but the other thing I was going to say to you um about that sort of transcendental, trans, transcendental, okay. transcendental level of yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I like to, to, to look at occasionally on things like YouTube is to watch great like blues guitarists or guitarists in general. Yeah. Um, two examples that I was thinking about. So I've been watching some stuff, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, blues numbers and some print stuff actually yeah. but when those guys are playing it, it's not a mechanical process anymore the actual playing of the instrument they, they almost become one yeah. with the instrument and you see them like you see them with like their like their mouth open almost as if they're part of it yeah. and if you ever want to see an example of that kind of thing like that, that's an amazing place to look. You're just like, well, this guy, he's not even conscious of playing at that point. 
you know he's just in it almost yeah. it's that concept of kind of flow I guess like real deep flow yeah and it's and I think that's you you can let go once once you they've they've spent time learning to 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 play to play yeah. and then they've been able to let go mm. and and that I think again that comes back to that associative process of becoming autonomous and mm. um, there's a process to that um, and, and and they've learned to let go of this is how I should do it and mm. just just. It's, it's become yeah. autonomous, yeah. and they're they're very comfortable with what they're doing. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people never, in, I guess, in any walk of life or any activity, any skill, never really get that because they're always trying to get it right. Mm. Uh, and, and at some point, and and it's again, this is why it's a process. It's not um, you can't instantly become really skillful. Mm. But you have to manage, and again, I think this is what a really good teacher's um, uh, process, they understand the process of taking a learner from understanding what they need to do to starting to use it in a way that's 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 responsive and free and flowing and relaxed. Yeah. Uh, I, again, another thing that drives me mad, you hear people saying, oh, you've, you've got to ski with a strong core. You, you've got to control your upper body. And all you see is these people skiing around with their movement and you're going, oh my God. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, yet yeah, to be a really good skier, you need to be a good athlete. And yes, you need to have a strong core that means that you, you have available the muscles mm. to, to deal with forces when they, when they come along. But if you ski around with that, all those muscles really tense, yeah, yeah. you can't move and you're blocked and you, you have no skill. Um, mm. and, and uh, a re- again a really a really good skier starts as relaxed as possible mm. and engages the muscles they need to deal with the situation yeah. not start really tense yeah, and have nothing yeah, yeah. available no it's true um, but I, I keep hearing this oh but I've been told to keep a strong core and you're going uh, okay yeah. right let's, let's a let's, better word would be like a still core wouldn't it I, I when you're skiing there's a certain there's a part somewhere yeah. in the body it's around the center of the body which you can kind of use as an axis yeah and if you were to say no actually it's better to keep that area still or maybe even the head is su- yeah. supremely important right so as you keep that level yeah. let everything just happen underneath you yeah and i think i think what you do is you start off from a relaxed point and you say okay try i'll just bring a little bit of tension in there and see what happens mm. and then a bit more and um, and again, it's, it's so often, uh, you know, I think when people say that you need a strong core, then they they kind of know what they want the learner to do. But very often the, the words they use don't bring about the outcome. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think feedback, feedback is about obliging a change. Um, and... You you're th- you have to be very careful about what you say because what you say will bring about a change whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and very often you say something and you actually don't get the outcome you want. Yeah. So I've learned to be very very careful about exactly what I say. Um, oh, and- this happens to me all the time when I'm doing that same thing. So what I I will I think the clients think I'm a bit crazy when I do this. So what I do is that I'll I'll. I'm very conscious of this concept of choosing the right words. Yeah. So I'll sit there and often I'll be like, I'll 
close my eyes and I'll be doing this. Like, no, you can't see me this now, but I'm, uh, I put my eyes closed and I'm sort of waving my hands around my head. I'm just like desperately trying to think of the right words to deliver in as fewer words as possible and not use the wrong word. Yeah. You know, push, press, push versus press. Or, you know, something like that. You know, and um, it's hugely important. That well, choice of language. Yeah, because and, and you have to adapt to the learner. Yeah. And very often, you know, I, I will choose words and then go, uh oh, that's wrong. <laughs> that didn't work, so yeah. I'm going to change that. And and again, that that's the great thing about teaching skiing is you're working with people, um, uh, and and you're constantly and it's exactly the same as your skiing performance. You're constantly adapting mm. to who you've got in front of you. Yeah. And very and, and it's it's very very often trial and error, and it's being prepared to go. Right, what I said didn't work. Let's try, let's have a different, let's use some different words. Let's have a different way of describing it. Let's try something different. Yeah. And not keep saying the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's that's very often the, the, the fun of, of teaching um, mm. is, and, and being comfortable about adapting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm still doing it, I guess. <laughs> Don't know anything else. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Same as me. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I said, well, I don't know anything else. Can't do anything else. <laughs> no. I want to just take you back a little bit, if I can, to the, the, the sort of when you were then getting more and more involved in Bayesley. There's two things I'd love to talk to you about. So you eventually became chairman of Bayesley. Chief exec. Chief exec, basically, the boss man. There's two things. But one, I think, is kind of linked to the other. So you came out here to set up a ski school. Presumably, I think you did the French old, um, the French test of capacity. Yep. Which was the forerunner to the Euro test, which you are secretary for. You're the Euro test origins, in effect. Um I'd love to talk about those two subjects and then I think what we'll do is we'll save all of my other stuff, including the living in a barn story in Austria (laughs) for the next one. Okay. Um, Because I could talk to you for hours, right? So give me me the background on on whichever one of those two came first. I presume it's the French equivalent. Yes, when you came out here to to set up. Yeah, so I guess... um, yeah, I mean, I I I come out of my ski pretty much stopped ski racing uh, nineteen eighty seven. Um, I think was my last season of ski racing, um, and then went oh right okay and and I got offered a job um, as head coach of the the Scottish ski team which I did, and then started to think well okay, um, I kind of by this time I'd left the engineering behind. Um, you know that was that was sort of five years ago, and I hadn't I'd never used any engineering, I never got into it properly. Um, so um, I, I I then started to look at things, and um, one of my friends, Stuart Adamson, um, encouraged me to come and work for him in his ski school in Outdoors. And he said, you, you, all you need to do is to get your equivalence is just do this thing called the, the test de capacity, um, which was a slalom time test and a free run. Hmm. Um, and I, I was literally just coming out of the British ski team. Um, 
within I was you know within twelve months of that pretty much, um, and the testing capacity, you had two two or three openers, um, and it was a asylum test, and you you had two runs, and you had to score, um, between the two bits the the the. Um, the, the free run and the, the uh, asylum test you had to score 30 points mm-hmm. and you had to have a minimum of 8 points in each one so the asylum test and the asylum test interestingly they doubled they, 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 if you got 8 points they doubled it and they made it 16 okay. and then you had to get if you got 16 points out of asylum you had to get another 14 points mm-hmm. from the free run um, so I got in the asylum. So, yeah. so you had these point system. Um, so I got it was about sixteen points in the uh, in the asylum, mm. which has doubled to make it thirty two. Um, so I had enough <laughs> points to pass without doing the free run, um, and it was pretty close to the opener's time. Um, and then they had this free run, and the free run was crazy. Um, so it was in Alpe d'Huez and you've got the, the um, I can't remember what it's called the signal um, and you've got the lift, lifts that go up and on the left hand side there's an off-piste run and I think it might have changed now yeah. but it was, it was probably the end of March and uh, there were these massive bumps that were frozen and then they'd had about 20 centimetres of new soil and stuff yeah. which were, had then gone soggy because it was hot and sunny. Mm. So you had this sort of sludge on top of these massive icy bumps and we were expected to do high-speed, long-radius turns down this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just crazy. And, and yeah, I got, I got 10 points out of that. I took it easy because I didn't want to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but it, was, it was mad. And you had all these people turning up and some of them were, yeah, they, they, they were reasonably good skiers, but they weren't, they weren't that good. And they're hurling themselves down this stuff and, and having huge falls. And I'm going, oh, my God, they're going to kill me. And, and it, well, it was terrifying. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was just crazy. And they had five, five people at the side marking you. So it was, yeah. it was very subjective. And they yeah. just decided whether, you, you, uh, whether you had enough points or not. Um, <laughs> And it was just crazy. I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is a uh, this is full on." Yeah, yeah. It was it was a it was a tough test, um, and actually, you know, the Euro test now is is so much so much safer than what they had there, <laughs> and less subjective, I suppose, as well, yeah. right? Because it's timed. Uh, yeah. And and you know, one of the things when when we came to getting agreements in Europe, and and very much, it was very clear. When, when we went through the process of getting our, our qualifications recognised in France, um, that the European Commission made it very clear to us at the time. And, and I was very much, I had lots of arguments with, with people like Roger Mouraveau and Gilles Chabert, and they would say things like, well, you know, the British have no World Cup winners, therefore they can't ski. And I would go, well, mm, I don't think that's quite the definition of whether we have good ski instructors or not. Yeah. Um, and I was very against the uh, the idea of a Euro test and, and, and the, the idea of having a time test for ski instructors in giant slalom or slalom or whatever it was. Mm. And I was very resistant to it. In the end, it was the European Commission that said, listen, if you want to get your qualifications recognised, the way free... Have we lost mm. it? No, no. Go on, um, 
the way free movement of labour works in Europe is that the host nation has a right to require you to meet the standards that their own people mm. have to do. If they have this time test for everybody in France to become a ski instructor, you cannot expect to be able to work in their country without doing the same thing that their people have to do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, do, do not expect the European Commission, Europe, to support um, you being able to work in France unless you do what the French do. And they said you have to you have to go into this agreement with rec- and you've got Austria, Italy, and France all saying that they want to have this time test as part of working as a ski instructor. Mm. Um, whether your opinion is different, that's irrelevant. If that's what those countries do, mm. you have to do it. So so very much um, is made very clear that this is this is the only way forwards was we had to have an agreement that included something like this. And there yeah. were two things and they said, listen, the agreement was we will have two things. We will have a mountain safety. So in France, if you're fully qualified, you're allowed to take anybody anywhere off piste as long as it's not glacier terrain. We need to make sure you're competent to do that. Mm-hmm. And we want to have all four nations having that as part of their their system. And the other one was this time test. And we managed to move it from Salem to Giant Salem, mm-hmm. which, you know, my experience of it is that when you've got a Salem race, um, it's very common that only 20% finish a Salem mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. When you have a Giant Salem race, you very often find 80 to 90% finish a Giant Salem race. Mm-hmm. So... My perspective was, you know, if we're only going to get two chances at this a year, maybe four runs a year, slalom isn't the right solution yeah. because people will just keep failing to finish. Yeah. Um, it was So giant slalom for me was better. And let's get rid of this, this observed free run, which is for me was dangerous yeah. for, for most people. Um, and we negotiated a, an agreement, which was the Eurotest. Um and the other thing was that Eurotest, to a certain extent, was less subjective than a lot of other solutions. It wasn't based on some 60-year-old bloke standing at the side. Yeah, going, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was good enough. No, that wasn't. Yeah, yeah. that was good enough. That wasn't. Which is very difficult to manage um, the, the consistency and, and the, the, you know, so, um, and I, know, I can remember going to, to Sudtirol, um, and looking at the Italian system where mm. they had observed they observed people skiing giant slalom yeah, right. um, and it was very their criteria very specific and it was very accurate and it was a very high standard mm. um, but again it was it was more open yeah. to to abuse yeah yeah um, so in the end we had this what I felt was the best possible solution we could get mm. for our members and and the Eurotest is Still, for me, um, the, the best solution that's available to us, um, uh, and of course now with Brexit, um, it's become kind of irrelevant, but, mm. but uh, it, it was still something. And, and, and again, philosophically, do the best ski instructors in the world come from people who can ski through a giant slalom really fast? No. But the culture and the environment and the place we want to work demands it. 
it's as good as it gets. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, I don't want to go into the the philosophies and politics of hmm. of that. No, no, but you can see why. You know, if they have to put in place something, why not have something subjective as opposed uh, objective as opposed to subjective, right? Yeah. Okay, let's um, let's finish this here, and what we'll do because I've got so much other stuff I want to talk to you about. We'll do a Peter Kiel part two okay. another time. If people want to get in touch with you or ski with you in Chatel, where can they um, where can they get in touch? With you, um, the best place is uh, the website school dot com slash chatel. Okay, cool. Just noting that down. Chatel, perfect. Thank you so much. Cool for Thank taking you. the it's time. Been, it's been fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as bad as I think. It's not. As bad, it's never as bad as yeah. anyone thinks it's going to yeah. be. That's cool. Great. Thank you.